0: At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art, and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Thank you for joining us for this episode of A Book with Legs. I'm very excited to welcome this episode's guests as I have treasured not one, but now two of their works. I believe this book's central theme is legacy, an important idea for each man and woman to contemplate for their own life. Daniel Schulman is joining us to talk about his newly released book, The Money Kings, the epic story of the Jewish immigrants who transformed Wall Street and shaped modern America. A little background on Daniel. Mr. Schulman has written for Boston Globe Magazine, Politico, Vanity Fair, The Washington Post, and Mother Jones. Uh, He previously published the best-selling book, Sons of Wichita, which I commented on earlier. And that's a wonderful story to understand, really, the Koch family. And as I mentioned earlier, this idea of legacy. So Dan, thank you for joining me today.
1: It's my pleasure. Nice to be with you, Cole.
0: So we always ask authors what inspired you to write this book, but I feel that wouldn't make do for this book. I think a better way to ask this to you would be: Did you make this book your magnum opus?
1: <laughs> wow, um, you know this this book has been nine years in the making. I thought it was going to be two years in the making, but. Life intervened, a couple kids, a pandemic, um, Mm -hmm. in the meantime. And I sort of fell into this story. When I finished my last book, I jotted down probably 100 ideas for another book. And one thing I started researching was this wave of anarchist violence at the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. And I came upon a fellow named Jacob Schiff, who had been the recipient of some mail bombs that they thought were from the anarchist underground at the time. And I just became fascinated by this story of Jacob Schiff, this tycoon who I really knew very little about. And as as I learned more about him, I realized that my family story connected to Schiff, and I'll explain Mm -hmm. why. My father was a son of Jewish immigrants who immigrated from from what is present-day Ukraine, but was then... Part of what they called the Pale of Settlement, which was sort of this fringe of territory on the Russian Empire where Jews were permitted to live. And now Schiff, during his lifetime, in addition to his financial impact, basically made it possible for millions of persecuted Jews to immigrate from Russia and Eastern Europe. And that would have included my grandfather and grandmother. So this story is extremely personal to me. And I was just fascinated by how a tycoon like Schiff who lived on Fifth Avenue and my relatives who lived in Williamsburg, Brooklyn in a tenement were nevertheless connected.
0: Agree. And, and we'll talk about that because, I mean, there's so much of this book that it even stretches into today. I mean, there's a lot of the parallels of this book that I thought, well, that's still going on, or you know, you've know, you heard that before. So I, I we'll come back to some of those themes. Um, so let's start your story where you do with the Seligman family in Germany. What was going on in the 1830s in Germany at the time?
1: I mean, it, it, at that time in Germany and in other parts of Europe, Jews were living as an underclass. In Germany, you many Jews could not own land. They were barred from most professional careers. You couldn't be a lawyer probably not an academic. And there were places where you couldn't live, even Mm -hmm. people you couldn't marry. So these were the conditions that Joseph Seligman and his family were living under when he immigrated to the United States in, in the 1830s.
0: So Joseph decides to go to America and walks directly into the panic of 1837. Teach us about, it's not like we sit down and say, oh, yeah, the panic of 1837. Can you kind of teach our our listeners about what that panic was like? Because it wasn't a problem just in business, but governments too.
1: You know, at that time, the financial system in the United States was pretty primitive. We didn't have a central bank. And it took very, very little to touch off bank runs, which would quickly lead to a financial panic. Our currency system, this, I mean, this was before it was a uniform currency system. A lot of it was based on gold. So if a ship were to go down carrying a big load of gold, that could cause a depression. In this case, you know, there had been years of sort of easy money and that came to a very quick halt and caused a financial depression that lasted for a number of years. Um, and that's what he ended up walking walking into in the United States.
0: Well, and I think you mentioned that eight states and the territory of Florida declared bankruptcy during that panic. So, it just showed how dangerous it was for all entities. Now he arrived, and then a kind of a what I would consider, based on the, like what I read in your book, a very typical process for others to follow him. You know, began. So, who followed Joseph from the family?
1: So there were sort of chains of migration that ended up happening. And in fact, you know, Joseph wasn't the first. There was a cousin who was living in Pennsylvania. And mm-hmm. based on his tales of life in America, that's what sort of ended up drawing Joseph. But based on Joseph's stories of the opportunities that were available to him and the money that could be made, his brothers slowly started following him over until eventually the entire family came over to America, with the exception of his mother, who died. But there were eight Seligman brothers, and over the course of their careers, they sort of had this divide-and-conquer strategy where they would more or less fan out to various locations, first in the United States and then eventually in Europe. And it was, you know, their numbers gave them a lot of advantages in business.
0: Yeah, these people, though, they didn't go find jobs uh, in most cases. They created a business, which is a pretty typical immigrant success story. You think of like language barriers and things of that nature. Being your own boss is much easier than having someone else be your boss. So what what business did the Seligman family go into?
1: They followed a trajectory that was very similar to a lot of Jewish immigrants from Germany of that era, In the old country, their fathers and grandfathers had been merchants and peddlers. And so oftentimes that is what the new arrivals would do in the United States. So um, one of Joseph's first jobs when he struck out on his own was as a peddler. And basically you would just venture far from the local, the nearest commercial centers, often selling goods that they were sort of luxury goods to the wives of miners and farmers and that sort of thing. And the next rung on that on the economic ladder was often to open up a business once you had amassed enough capital. And that's what Joseph and his brothers ended up doing. And they ended up doing that in Alabama. Now it's it's funny because one of the relatives of uh, a great grandson of one of the Lehman brothers, who also ended up in Alabama and also fo- followed this peddling to shop dry goods store trajectory um described peddling as the Harvard business school for Jewish boys and it was there was a, <laughs> a, there was an element of truth to that because that's where they learned they learned the english language they got comfortable with american customs they were able to develop rapport with the with the local population and this is what sort of you know kickstarted their business careers
0: yeah. And, and by the, throughout your book, you have just really great German words and phrases sprinkled throughout the book. And I think the word that you used in the German was handlesman, this idea of a merchant.
1: Exact. Don't ask me to pronounce any of that, but, uh.
0: I'm, I'm taking my best <laughs> shot, so I appreciate yeah, you saying I th- that. I
1: think, I think, yeah, I think that's right. Um, and, uh, yeah, handlesman, I, I believe that's merchant. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, as I mentioned, the, 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 fathers and grandfathers of these immigrants had been in these professions in Germany, which were really the only professions where they could earn a living at that time.
0: Sure, because I, I think the other thing was really interesting, it, to your point, both the Seligman family and the the Lehman family ended up in the South. And w- was there a particular draw to the South? Or did people just think, oh, there's more opportunity there? What was That was one of the things I was walking away thinking about was it's strange that these powerful families went South first but obviously, ended up in New York in the end.
1: Yeah, I think there was um, there was a couple things happening. In the case of the Lehmans, from what I can tell, they had a connection in Alabama of some sort, a family connection of some sort, mm-hmm. and that's what one reason why they ended up gravitating there. Um, in terms of the Seligmans, they started out in first New York, then Pennsylvania, and they sort of were expanding their terrain more and more. But they were really looking for places where. There were opportunities where there wasn't going to be too much competition and where there was going to be a market for their for their goods. In many cases, you know, this it was really this whole sort of idea of arbitrage because they were buying goods, you know, in -hmm. New York or in other locations and, you know, selling them at a profit in places where these goods were hard to obtain. And I think, you know, Alabama was attractive for that reason, because it was both developing quickly but they also found it was not like totally uh, full of competitors at that time. I mean, I think at the time when when the Lehman's ended up in Montgomery, it was, you know, the population was pretty small. It was, uh, but it was was growing rapidly.
0: So I, I think one of the more beautiful stories in your book is what you explained when Joseph was accused of a crime. Could you kind of tell that story and how it had repercussions again, from a legacy perspective to many years later?
1: Well, it's interesting, you know, there is this old Seligman story about how when the Seligmans were so, sort of settling in Selma, Alabama at that time, Joseph's brothers scattered out to pedal, and he helped, was holding down the shop. And at one point, and it's not clear exactly what happened, but it might have had to do with the fact that he was Jewish, gets into a fight with a, with a local, and they had a pretty good bout, it sounds like, and he ended up going to jail, I think. Finally, a... Uh, the son of a local jurist ended up intervening on his behalf and saying, this guy didn't cause the fight, and he was released. And as the story goes, after the Civil War, when Alabama was desperately looking for to, to raise loans to to rebuild, somebody showed up at, at Joseph's office in New York looking for a loan, and he recognized this man immediately as the man who had intervened on his behalf. But he, this guy didn't know who, uh, who Joseph was. And Joseph invited him to dinner at his home that night where he was having a number of guests over, and he sort of tells this elaborate story of what happened and stands up and says, and this was the man who intervened on my behalf, you know, when I was a lowly Jewish immigrant, you know, falsely accused. So that's kind of a funny story.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it was like an engagement party, if I remember your book correctly, to where it was. This was not yeah. like a, just a dinner; it was a very special dinner to honor their guest. Right, right. So um, now, also one other thing, and I think you touch on this, is kind of this idea of old world, the old world monarchies of Europe. Can you also explain, you know, what was going on in eighteen forties in the upheaval of Europe that also kind of was driving some of this movement and change?
1: Yeah, you know, in the in the late eighteen forties and. The the causes ranged from place to place, but there were a series of revolutions that overtook Europe, including in Germany. And basically, a lot of it had to do with just a push for basic civil rights. And I mean, in terms of the Jews of Germany, this also had to do with this concept of emancipation. Um, So the revolutions of um, 1848 ended up sending a lot of Jews and other immigrants over to the United States and they're, they're called 48ers as they fled these uh, revolutions that were being pretty brutally put down.
0: Mm. So while they're in the South, Andrew Jackson had pulled the plug on the second bank of the United States in 1832, which kept much of the South on a barter system as you as you wrote. I think of the commodity trading businesses, some of these Jewish you know institutions ended up dominating, but their origins were in these commodities, not necessarily because it was virtue, it was necessity that caused them to be in those industries. Is that a fair way of thinking about, you know, why they ended up in commodity oriented businesses at times? I
1: think in terms of the Lehman's, you know, our currency system, again, was such a mess at that time. Banks, you know, banks could willy-nilly issue currency and there was so much forgery that it was unclear if you, you know, had had the real thing or a fake. And so in their case, you know, a crop like cotton, which was a cash with a cash crop. That's how they did business in Alabama at that in in that era. So they transacted a lot of business just in through barter through cotton for goods. Um, And that's how they gradually got more and more involved in this business.
0: Yeah. And I think off of that, I think you also explained and I was wondering where you got this tidbit because I thought it was a very interesting way of looking at commissions. But You also explained that when they were doing these transactions, they were taking real risk. If you sold to them, let's say you were selling cotton, for example, they would give you a price and they would do everything tied to the transaction. And I think if I remember correctly, you'd said that, you know, what they got collected on that was, you know, about two and a half percent of the transaction.
1: Yeah. And I mean, this was the typical role of what they, I think they called them like cotton factors or commission merchants where you would ha- you would handle every aspect you know, up to ensuring the cargo and making sure that it got to the right the right place at the time so there definitely was risk and but obviously there was quite a bit of reward tied to that too and you know another business that they got into was the business of, of just storing cotton and that became particularly important during the civil war
0: so the Seligman family decides to end up, they head north to New York. And you note that, for example, they they did not agree with slavery in the South. And so they, they leaned Republican from a political perspective versus, you know, I mean, these are Jewish families. They're from, you know, similar places in Germany. And yet the Lehman's didn't have that same view of politics as the Seligman's did.
1: It's quite interesting. I think I, I, you know. I don't think slavery was the main reason why the Seligmans ended up in New York. Sure, um, but it was certainly one of them. A factor. Um, it was certainly a factor. It was lost on nobody at that time that there was a certain amount of hypocrisy involved with um, Jews being in the South and involved with slavery. In terms of the uh, the Lehman's involvement, you know, they owned slaves. Cotton formed a major part of their business. And certainly after the Civil War, they played a role in actively managing plantations. Mm -hmm. So, And they certainly were not alone in this. There were many Jews that were able to sort of overlook overlook this basic fact um, of their story. And I think part of it had to do with trying to assimilate more into the local into the local culture and follow the local customs. And the Lehman's absolutely like, you know, very much, you know, integrated into the fabric of that community.
0: Yeah, and I, I, cause I, I think you posed it as like, was it, were they accepting of it or were they embracing it? And I think you really pointed towards they embraced the culture because to your point, that was the community.
1: Absolutely. And I I mean, I think if you certainly look at their activities, uh, you know, managing the plantations after the Civil War is is fairly significant. And part of the basis of their fortune does come from come from
0: slavery. So Jesse strikes out to go out west. And if I remember correctly from your writing, you know, the family fronts him goods to take with him. He went via, I think, the Panama route, if I remember correctly, to go around to San Francisco. And so here he is taking all this risk. And yet while he's taking all this risk, he shows great pragmatism and thoughtfulness in where he chooses to put his store and the building that his store sits in, in San Francisco.
1: I think this is a really good point, actually, to make about all of these guys, because in terms of the risks that they took, while they could be large— Mm-hmm. They were often very cautious um, at the same times and, and pragmatic. So what had happened in Jesse's case is that when he he had a shop in northern New York State and it had burned down, and the whole basically the whole town had burned down, um, and they lost they lost basically everything. So when he went to San Francisco, and this was sort of a trait of his, he was kind of a uh, an adventure seeker, and that's what. That's what uh, propelled him to San Francisco during the gold rush in the first place. But there were two things. Instead of following the you know the gold the, uh, the the gold bugs into the hills to pan for gold, you know he realized that in San Francisco, which was a sort of rough and tumble place at that time, you know there was a fortune to be made just by being able to get goods to get goods there because it was so. It was so difficult, as as remote. you mentioned, it was remote. Um, there were only a couple of ways to get there. One of which you could go overland. Um, it took a, a really long time. It was incredibly dangerous. You could go around. Uh, y- you could go around the South America, and also extremely dangerous. Or you could transit through what is now the Panama Canal. Basically, mm-hmm. you it, it was a very the Isthmus of Panama. It was you know you would get off on the Atlantic side walk with mules uh, loading your goods over to the Pacific side board another boat and then uh, then continue jur- your journey on to uh, San Francisco and that's what he ends up doing um, and in San Francisco you know it was it was a city that had almost sprung up overnight and a lot of the buildings were you know rickety they were they were built of wood there were very few buildings that were made of brick. And the building he decided to house his store in was one of the few brick buildings that was there at the time. And of course, when there was very soon after that, there was a fire that wiped out a good part of the city. His building ends up being the uh, one of the few standing.
0: Yeah, that, that's a great, as an investor, I think about when you can buy a business that has more surety, you should pay a higher price for it in retrospect, you would have paid a higher price for the rent in a, in a brick building because your goods were safer. <laughs> Cause I also like to your point about rough and tumble, some of these side stories you pulled out, I thought was awesome. So here's, you know, you point out Jesse's walking around San Francisco one day and has a bullet like zing past his, his ear. And he, he turned, and by the way, he, you, you mentioned he carried a Colt revolver on him and he turned to face the fellow and he's like, Oh, I'm sorry. You're the wrong guy.
1: <laughs> exactly. I mean, so. it was it was just you know it was it was the wild west out there at that time, and you know another interesting story about him is that he ends up joining up with the local vigilantes um, because there was no law and order there, um, and they you know meted out their own justice in in sometimes controversial ways.
0: Yeah, it makes me wonder if uh, people are going to read your book, and in cities like Seattle and Portland and L.A., decide to uh, you know just use precedence. <laughs> so, um, but let me pivot because I think you know right around this time is when you know um, you really get into some of the undertakings, also of like okay, there was there was prejudice in Europe, but then there even with people where Jewish people had a really good relationship, there were all these precarious moments. So the Civil War became you know, one of these precarious moments for Jewish business people really in the South because of order number 11 handed down by U.S. Grant, who was considered in many respects a friend of the Jewish people. Explain what that did to the Lehman's and other people in your story.
1: I mean, it was, that was a sort of interesting episode. I mean, that was one of the first episodes of really official anti-Semitism in mm-hmm. American history. Um, and this order was very quickly rescinded, but it basically expelled all the Jews from the territory that Grant oversaw, which was a large swath of land. Um, and this was based on his belief that Jews were disproportionately involved in the smuggling of of black market goods, in, mm-hmm. including cotton. Um, there, there was a sort of another part of this piece of this story was that uh, Grant's father. Jesse, who was sort of a ne'er-do-well, linked up with some Jewish brothers uh, and went to go see, uh, Jesse went to go see his son and tried to convince him to allow a shipment of cotton through. Um, and this just enraged Grant. Um, and the order came very soon after that. So it seems like there was a linkage. Um, but in terms of, you know, the there, there was a stranglehold on Southern cotton at that point, and the price just fluctuated uh, hugely during the Civil War. Um, it seems pretty clear that th- the Lehmans were involved in some sort of black market trade in order to get uh cotton out of the south um, but to them at that time, that would have been a patriotic thing to do,
0: yeah. Northern war finance was going on at this time and also just the procurement of goods. You had a really great story about Joseph, how he was willing to be creative for payment from the North. You recollect that story?
1: Well, I mean, at that point, they were sort of accepting payment. The Seligmans had entered into a contract with the United States government to provide uniforms and other mm-hmm. material to the army. Um, and there was very little, like, they were, they were accepting payment in bonds at that time, uh, which, which they would resell mm-hmm. um, and use as collateral uh, with their banks. Um, but the financial situation in the United States was so precarious that at one point, you know, Joseph gets a letter from the Treasury Department basically saying, like, we're not sure if we're going to be able to pay you uh, the million dollars that we owe you, um, And he sort of lost it because that was going to mean, you know, potentially the end of his business, but also this daisy chain of daisy chain of of subcontractors that they were employing to perform all of these contracts. Um, And apparently, it ended up working out.
0: Yeah, because when he when you talked about the treasury bonds, I immediately was thinking, you know, he he goes from this crazy situation where how am I going to get paid to okay, wait a second, if I take these treasury bonds. I can sell them at a discount to someone else, but then again, there's a new transaction that I've never thought about, right? In other words, like it was like your your problems became your opportunities immediately,
1: right? And that's, I mean, that was often the way um, some of these guys seemed to look at to look at things, and and that was what sort of helped in their business careers. And you know, soon after that, um, he was approaching the treasury about actually, you know, under I think he actually did not want to underwrite the bonds. He wanted to, he wanted to sell them, and so he, up, uh, he ends up working with um, Jay Cook & Company, which was a major investment bank at that time, which was really running uh, the northern bond-selling operation. Um, so this is how they sort of end up dipping a toe into finance and, and setting themselves up um, to transition from merchants to investment bankers in the post-Civil War era.
0: So your ultimate protagonist, like the biggest character, in your story writing is Jacob Schiff, and he was the son of a handlesman, like we talked about earlier. He was the son of a merchant, um, but he was a fairly wild child. Um, explain some of the issues that his father Moses and concerns he had over this, his son Jacob.
1: I mean, he was he was extremely ambitious from a very early age, and uh, even in Frankfurt, which was a, which was a major, um, you know city at that time and had a major banking industry, Mm -hmm. um, felt as if it was too small for him. Um, You know, he was raised in an Orthodox Jewish family. And the story is, is that during Hebrew lessons as a child, uh, to escape them, he jumped, you know, jumped out a window and, and shimmied down the drain pipe to the street below, you know, as a teenager. And this was sort of similar to Joseph Seligman as well. He starts sort of begging his parents to let him go to the United States and sort of mm-hmm. make it on his own. Um, and, eventually, and eventually he does that, but there's, a, there's some question as to whether he obtained his parents' consent before going or whether he sort of traveled on his own and, and, and sent them a letter from uh, England when he was halfway there.
0: So this wild child though ends up becoming this incredibly private person in the end. What, what caused that shift?
1: It's, I mean, it's a good question. There's some things that you can certainly point to, um, one of which was he comes to the United States, forms a brokerage with two others before the age of 20, um, and they very rapidly um, establish themselves. And mm-hmm. this is- That, that this, was Bud Schiff. Bud Schiff and company. Yep. And this is likely because, uh, because of a connection with Budge's uh, father back in Germany, um, who was also a banker, but these were in the this was in the uh, post Civil War era where, you know, it, it was a real financial Wild West on Wall Street. Um, you know, people were floating all sorts of securities that were worthless. There was a lot of criminality going on, um, and they end up getting involved with a railroad enterprise that um and they're vouching for this company and basically you know marketing their bonds in the united states as well as in europe and this 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 railroad very soon goes bankrupt um and it causes you know a substantial controversy that affected schiffs reputation i mean you could certainly see and this was one great resource for me, the RG Dunn and Company um, credit reports from that era, where you know, uh, credit reporters would just jot down notes about all of these businesses. And that's how Wait, I was able to which
0: by the way was the predecessor I assumably to Dun and Bradstreet. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I was I was wondering where you got these. I mean, I was sitting there thinking, wow, this is like a treasure trove of information, and that's how credit was passed then.
1: It was. And I mean, it's it's amazing to see the sort of things that are uh, that are jotted down there um, in. You know, I'll come back to Schiff in a second. But, it, you know, in terms of the Lehman's just in Alabama, you can see the way that people viewed Jews at that time and mm-hmm. how their reputation changed Um You know, they went from there went from being notations about how they were members of the tribe and you could not you could not trust them to uh, you know to transact business with, um, to later on you know a decade down the road being you know like uh, they you know they're trustworthy almost as good as white men, um, Mm. which was it's so it's just it's just absolutely fascinating. Um, In Schiff's case, uh, from the credit report volumes, you can see that the business definitely tarnished his. Reputation to some degree uh, And certainly the company And what happens after this controversy Is that he and other Members of the firm end up going back To Germany mm-hmm. um, It's not totally clear that The dissolution of the business was The cause of that but it seems Quite possible um, And my theory is That this is one of the reasons why Schiff became uh, Quite private later on In his life and He uh, and very guarded about his exposure to the press, which is not to say he didn't give interviews, he did, um, but he, you know, like any person of that type of stature, was very careful about managing his reputation.
0: So the Goldman's were originally a commercial paper operation, and you, you talk about that in your book. I've also read before, um, Dan, I've read uh, The Partnership, The Making of Goldman Sachs, which is another great book that kind of touches on that. Um, You might've used that for some background, but so what did a commercial paper transaction look like back then to the Goldman's?
1: I mean, it was, it was, it was so primitive. He was basically making short-term loans to, uh, to merchants in New York city at that time. And he had, he had just come from Philadelphia where he had been in the clothing business. Um, and all the people I write about sort of make this big transition from, being merchants to bankers uh, in, in this very defined uh, post-Civil War era where, where there was just a lot of opportunities to be had. But he would go down to the financial district and make loans to, uh, to the local merchants um, at a discount, and then he would sell them um, later on in tranches to a variety of banks um, where he would replenish his capital for the next day's transactions.
0: So Jay Cook failed, I think, in the Panic of 1873, if I remember correctly, and they were really one of the white-shoed firms in the securities business at the time. That was a highbrow name to be using for underwriting, and that was a. They were big in railroads. They were big with the government. I know it. You know, no panic is good, but did not this open the door wide open for really these Jewish firms in general to go out and do new underwriting?
1: I, well, I mean, I think it did to some extent. I mean, it's sort of like it definitely opened new opportunities in uh, the railroad business. But the, it it also, it, it very easily could have wiped some of these firms out at the same time because sure. it just so happened that Bud Schiff and Company, the predecessor of Kuhn Loeb that Schiff was working for, um, was doing business with, uh, with Jay Cook and Company at that time. Yeah, as they were they selling were,
0: securities for them.
1: They were selling securities in what I think I believe the Northern Pacific Railroad at that point mm-hmm. that which Jay Cook had become highly involved in. Um, so it was, but certainly Jay Cook was a huge name at that point, and um, and a lot of doors uh, I'm assuming would have opened at that point. It was sort of many years uh, later that Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers would get involved in in bonds and and securities, but. Uh, certainly, for Kuhn Loeb, um, which Schiff would join in the nineteen in the eighteen seventies, um, and the Seligmans, who were getting more and more involved in bond selling, um, it was you know th- there were new opportunities for them uh, there. Well,
0: because I think another thing that will and we'll touch on this later as we think about the um, trust busting era, but really the board roles, like getting onto those boards with these firms that was really kind of the keys to the kingdom wasn't it
1: it gave you quite a bit of control over a, a variety of, of things um, and in many cases it's it's not unusual if you're a major investor um, to want a seat at the table sure. um, but in some cases uh, you know Jay Gould is a good example he you know he often he often had a disproportionate role with certain railroads that he was part of and uh, and he and his partners did sometimes shady stuff um, sure. in terms of, you know, watering the stock, just basically getting a printing press and just printing shares of new shares of stock. I mean, printing money, basically. Um, so, but yes, it did, it did give them quite a bit of control. Um, and you alluded to this, the trust busting error, but this would later become quite controversial when it became clear that, you know... Uh, a ver- a fairly small group of investment bankers held directorates and uh, held board seats Well, we'll in- okay
0: yeah by the way we'll okay. come back to that cuz okay. I have the number I I wrote the number down I thought it was okay. incredible I think I think you I think you might have finally given me the number to say this is the trust era and but we'll come back to that so a couple of other things let's see the next two questions i will also be kind of foreshadowing of the future Jacob Schiff marries into the Kuhn Loeb partnership through his wife, Therese, okay? But wasn't this wedding really like the ultimate foreshadowing of the relationships that these banking families would have to follow?
1: Absolutely. I mean, what's so interesting about um, the, you know, Jewish banking sector at that time is that so many of the relationships were through family. And mm-hmm. uh, within this within this group of uh, dynasties that I read about, there was a lot of, um, there was, intermarriage, but there were also, you know, uh, friendships that formed that formed between, uh, you know, Philip, Philip Lehman and Henry Goldman, for instance. Yeah. Um, so there was just a lot of their lives were intertwined, not just in business, but, uh, their personal lives uh, as well. And, you know, this, this was both sort of a good thing and a bad thing.
0: Cause then the best man and, and the maid of honor, uh they were out of the if i remember correctly was it was it was uh out of the goldman part of the family
1: Sam Sam Samuel is, yep. uh one of his daughters uh, i'm sorry it was either his daughter or hers i no it was his wife his yeah. wife was the maid of honor yeah. um at that at that wedding which sort of shows you how closely interwoven these these families had become um and part of this was because uh you know there weren't that many Jews living in the United States at that time. All of these people came from a similar culture. Um, There, you know, there was, there certainly was interaction between Christian and Jewish society, but um, it was, it could be a little bit insular. Um, And I mean, these people were part of the same temple. They, you know, sat on the same boards. Um, And from really the very first moments that they were in New York, they were, they were doing in, they were doing business together as well. Well,
0: yeah, because I think if I, if you watch the HBO TV show uh, The Gilded Age, and I think you did a good job of kind of building this up in my mind in a way that I had I didn't have present before. But you kind of have the I'll call it the Morgan slash Astor Christian part of the business community, right? And then you had, you know, the Kuhn Loeb, the Seligman, the Goldman part of the business community and where they interacted was in business. It was on the companies like Gould with these firms, obviously where that was a huge interaction. And and a lot of your book talks about how J.P. Morgan interacted with these firms. And it was like they did business with each other. They respected each other, but they were still divided in in many cases.
1: Absolutely. You know, Morgan and Schiff were really the, you know, most important bankers of that era. Um, and as such, they would often do, uh, they would often do business together. I mean, technically they were competitors, they were rivals, but, um, at that time, you know, previously in terms of the railroads, there had been a lot of competition in the industry and and it had gotten to the point where, you know, people were building tracks within like a hundred yards with, with, you know, within yards of each other. And they were, uh, you know there were there was violence over that was erupting uh, between rival railroad companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Morgan and uh, Morgan and Schiff saw themselves as being a little bit more civilized, and because of that, they worked to build what they called the community of interest, which were basically monopolistic arrangements where um, competitors would sort of buy into each other's businesses um, so they would have an incentive to cooperate. Um, so, but when it came to sort of, you know, major transactions, uh, I think as a matter of courtesy, Kuhn Loeb would often offer Morgan uh, participation in these deals, and and vice versa.
0: So, in another foreshadowing of events to come uh, later in your story, can you explain how the Seligman family and the Kuhn Loeb organization assisted Sherman to get? America back to the gold standard and really solve the Civil War debts. I thought this was interesting. I'd never heard this story before.
1: Well, it's interesting because um, in the post-Civil, you know, uh, I didn't mention this earlier, but the Seligman family ended up be- becoming good friends with Grant. Um, and this came through Jesse's shop that he owned in uh, New York State, which just so happened that, that Grant was posted there mm-hmm. and would often play... Uh, checkers with the Seligman's brothers like in his in his off time. so they befriended him um, and uh, you know the story goes that Grant even ends up offering Seligman uh, the Treasury secretary position uh, but he turned it down because his brothers uh, didn't want him to he was such a factor in the business um, and his brothers didn't want him to get involved in politics so yeah um, you know Schiff but also Seligman mainly Seligman were sort of among the bankers that ended up advising uh, the administration on how to on how to deal with the the civil war uh, debt um, and they played a major role in that
0: yeah I think they, I think you said they raised something like 140 million dollars from primarily European investors. And that was more than obviously the debts were, but they took a portion of the excess and bought gold, which obviously gave a lot more confidence to anybody that, you know, wanted to turn their paper in for gold, which I thought was, and we'll come back to that because like when we talk about Paul Warburg later, we're going to take that. That was just a foreshadowing event in my mind. So let's talk a couple questions on the principled nature of, of Schiff. Because he was private, but yet he was a very principled person. Grant had a lot of friends that were Jewish, like you mentioned with the Seligman family. And Grant, you know, had to deal with some issues that were very sticky with Russia. What was Jacob Schiff's issue with Grant's decision making with Russia?
1: I mean, I think what ends up happening is that the conditions in the in the Pale of Settlement, which was this area that I described earlier, on the fringe of the empire, where uh, where much of the jewish population of the world at that time lived in that lived in that area and conditions were getting quite desperate for the jews there um again in this area like germany they were barred from holding many jobs they were forced into uh living in these in in these shtetls which were little villages where they were just basically subsisting Um, and increasingly uh in places like the pale of settlement um and in what is today romania um they were facing growing anti-Semitism and instances of mob violence um where their towns would be ransacked, people would be injured and murdered, um, what we call you know w- what you've heard of as, as the the series of pogroms mm-hmm. um and uh and Schiff and other leaders in the Jewish community were really pushing for uh grant and eventually other presidents to sharply rebuke the the Russian czar to end the persecution of, of the Jews um, and allow them to live freely.
0: And part of this was over just passports too. In other words, like they, if they went with an American passport, they were not considered a person like other Americans.
1: Ex- exactly. And this ends up becoming, this ends up becoming a major issue uh, for Jews, and particularly for Schiff, but it was, um, as you said, it was sort of a matter of principle. Um, because Jews were treated as a second-class citizens in the Russian Empire, um, if you traveled there as a U.S. citizen of Jewish descent, you did not have the same privileges as other American citizens. At that time, we had a treaty with Russia allowing reciprocal, reciprocal rights of uh, travel and, and commerce, but this was not extended to Jews. Now, there were very few Jews that really wanted to go to Russia at that time, uh, travel there, but to shift, this wasn't the issue. He just felt as if, if we allow this to take place, um, then we're showing the Russian empire that it's okay that they treat Jews unequally. Um, But if we force them to uh, the standard that the treaty set, they would not be able to uphold this two-tiered system anymore. Um so what what ends up being called the passport issue was really something that was uh, was pushed pretty heavily, uh, especially in the early hundreds by by Schiff and others.
0: Well obviously this didn't the, you know the idea of the pale settlement and the issue with Russia that continued on for decades to follow, all the way up you know through the Bolshevik Revolution. And then all, obviously you know once once the I'll call it Kaiser Wilhelm's, kingdom ends, obviously Poland becomes its own country, and the pale settlement is still, you know, tied up in the negotiations of the post-World War One era. So it's it's interesting that like these I'll call them demons. These demons don't go away. They're not going to go away on their own. And I think Schiff was really thoughtful about, you know, what's the long run consequences of what we're debating here. But also, while he's that principled, he also was very graceful and the story you told of him on the Mount Sinai board I think also teaches people that he was human. He was a pragmatist as a principal person.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Schiff. If I if I'm remembering this story correctly, I, I think you know he was serving on the board of the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, and and I think Meyer Lehman, one of the Lehman Brothers, was also yeah. uh, involved with the Mount Sinai at that time. Um, and you know, Schiff had a reputation for being generous, for being principled, he could also be extremely rigid and see the world in very black and white terms. Um, And when he learned that one of his fellow board members had gone bankrupt due to some unwise uh, financial speculation, he basically said, you know, uh, I don't want to serve on the board with someone like this. How can they manage the finances of, of this nonprofit organization if they can't manage their own finances? Um, And it turned out that this, you know, this guy uh, would later go commit suicide. uh, Was it Hanauer?
0: I think Hanauer was his name.
1: his name was was Moses Hanauer. He committed suicide, leaving behind uh, a wife and uh, children. And after Hanauer's suicide, um, Schiff seeks out uh, Hanauer's son and ends up giving him a job at Kuhn Loeb. Um, And Hanauer ended up becoming the first... Uh, partner that was not related to the family in that firm um, and I would love to know that I was no- but I was never able to discover whether Hanauer was aware of this whole backstory mm. with with Schiff um, His uh, Schiff's granddaughter only learned this years you know decades later when she was approached to become a member of the Mount Sinai board and she inquired of someone who had worked there for many years like you know why hasn't anybody uh, in my family been uh, serving on the board all this time? And, and she learned the story of, uh, of what had transpired with Schiff and Moses Hanauer.
0: Well, since we're on a Schiff role, I, I think, um, you know, to go back to another Schiff thinking and the way he lived his life, Schiff looked at leadership among the Jewish people very interestingly. Um, I'm going to quote your book. Uh, You quote him saying, quote, Jews do not elect their leaders. One becomes a leader among them, end quote. Based on your writing, he looked at his role in a manifest way as though God had put him there at that moment. Is that fair?
1: Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I think he, yes, I think he did. I mean, there's also, he could be humble, but he also could see himself in sort of grandiose terms um, as if he was almost a Moses figure leading the Jews out of... Uh, parting the waters to lead the, lead the Jews out of Egypt. Um, but it, it was interesting at that time, you know, again, the, the Jewish population was small. Um, it, its leadership was uh, really dominated by these tycoons, uh, mainly German Jews, who composed a lot of the leadership of these various Jewish organizations. Um, but... Due to his role in finance as really uh, – he was really becoming, you know, the one of the nations and the world's most infamous, uh, famous investment bankers. Due to his role in finance and due to his philanthropy, um, his interest in it, his leadership, as well as his donations, he ends up really assuming this role of leadership within the Jewish community that uh, – very true. It was not uh, elected. And this would later become controversial as the Jewish community expands, it fragments, there are many competing factions and, you know, people start to wonder, why do you have get to make the, why do you get to make the rules?
0: Yeah. Um, You mentioned the crime of 73 as a term. And when you mentioned that, it kind of just snapped into my head that like the all these, like just crazy conspiracy theories of like a cabal and everything like that. It seems in my mind to emanate from the crime of 73 and really what became the future popularity of the Silver Cross and Williams Jennings Bryant. Can you explain what happened in the crime of 73 according to people at the time? That's I,
1: that's interesting. I mean, what so what had happened is that uh, initially the United States was on the bi-metallic system. It was not on the gold standard. It was both gold and silver were, were redeemable for cash. Um, the crime of 73 was when the government sort of low-key places the United States back on, on the gold standard, but silver is no longer uh, redeemable. Um, now, at the time, there were huge silver deposits being discovered out West, allowing you to basically mint money yourself. Um, and so mining interests, but also uh, Midwestern farmers and and populists were really opposed to this idea. And they blamed the Eastern bankers, the quote unquote, sound money crowd for this development.
0: So like using as an example, like the Comstock load had just been found by folks like George Hearst, which we did a book with with, uh, on George Hurst by Matthew Bernstein. And those big deposits are being found while this took place. And I think of, I mean, I, I know this sounds overly simplistic, Daniel, but that, I mean, this is how my head w- works. I, I, I like to boil things down to simple pictures. You could just see like these redneck farmers or people out in the sticks going, see, it's these Jewish firms that prefer gold that have talked the government into this, which is not true. But that's the kind of conspiracy theories that I would almost point and say, here's where American conspiracy theorists started when economics changed because of these government decisions.
1: I mean, there were there were certainly a lot of conspiracy theories. What, what's very interesting, though, is that in terms of anti-Semitism in the United States, um, it, it certainly was not as prevalent as it was in Germany. Um, and it's sort of, you know, I, I mean, the, the one thing, Schiff and others viewed the United States as a promised land because, uh, you know, Jews were able to live, work and worship freely. Uh, There was no bar on uh, what they could do, uh, what they could do with their lives. Um, And I mean, I think in terms of the gold silver issue, uh, you know, again, it comes back to this, you know, our our economy was we were the the United States was uh, an emerging market. At that point, where Europe was operating, like many European nations were operating on the gold standard, uh, the fact that we would have uh, a bimetallic standard caused issues because European nations could dump their silver in the United States for gold, uh, and gold would flee across the uh, across the ocean, uh, mm-hmm. and that would end up causing uh, financial problems. So that's why the eastern bankers were... Um, and of course, it was, you know, just not just the Jewish firms, but, you know, uh, the eastern bankers were pretty united in their belief that the U.S. should be on uh, the gold standard.
0: So one really telling story you had of Jesse Seligman was when Jay Gould died. And I found this really interesting because, because uh, we did, like I said earlier, American Rascal with Greg Steinmetz, and I found like a whole new appreciation for Gould. You know, most people paint him as a huckster, and I, I learned a lot more about him as a railroad owner and an investor. And when you quoted Jesse in your book, he said, "quote I can't say that Mr. Gould was in his moral nature more better, much worse, or much different than any other shrewd player of his generation. I've known them all." I've known Jay Gould better than most, and I can tell you he deserves no more notoriety than those against which and with which he played, end quote. Just such pragmatism that I don't think you read in a lot of even modern literature about Jay Gould. Is that how you read Jesse's statement on that? Or was he just have a lot of respect for a competition? Because ultimately, that's what these gentlemen played in was a competition for money.
1: <laughs> I think that quote was I, 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 when I found that quote I thought that was just extremely revealing about the waters that they swam in at that time Yeah. Uh, Jay Gould, Jay Gould was an extremely complicated figure and, and I think you're right that he is painted pretty one dimensionally um, there's no question that he did things that were questionable at the time
0: or are what we consider unethical nowadays but at that time we're part of the game
1: Right, I mean there was not there really were not many rules. I mean that this is the this was part of the issue, you know, he was playing in a system where there were not any rules. So, you know, he would uh he and his allies would cor- try to corner uh the gold market yep. at a time when uh doing so, he could force uh short sellers to settle on his terms. And the economy was just a lot smaller and you were able to sort of pull off these shenanigans. I mean, he dueled with Cornelius Vanderbilt and, and ends up escaping across the uh, Hudson River in a rowboat. Um, so he was, you know, he to an extent, he was a bit of a scoundrel, but he was also operating in, in, in this system where there were not many rules. Um, and I think that's why you see Jesse Seligman say, you know, this was just uh, the name of the game at that point. Um, and uh, as Jesse said, he was... You know he rubbed shoulders with all of those fellows uh, during that time and Gould was a uh, Gould was a client of W Seligman uh, and company. and I think in this huge uh, unpublished manuscript that was written as a corporate history uh, they very they note in a very understated way that you know whenever uh, Jay Gould made an investment like you know Seligman would make make it make one for their own account because they they knew they were gonna, they, they sort of turned a blind eye to whether it was fully an ethical thing that he was up to. So uh, I, that's, I think it's a funny quote.
0: Yeah, another telling story of Jesse that we won't go into, but I just wanna mention for readers that they should really you know get into against, uh, in this idea of like Jewish prejudice. He was a member at the union club and he goes to get his son in and they don't take him, even though he's been like a, a club vice president. And I think that was a really interesting story to understand you know, there was bias against people that were successful even in their own institutions. But I want to pivot actually, because, because the, much of the latter part of your book is, it has touches a shift, but it's really about the Warburgs. So I just want to kind of pivot just quickly, you know, they are a German family. What were their roots? Because it seemed like it had a little more money trappings than a lot of these other families did from their origin.
1: Yeah. The, the Warburgs, um, ended up establishing a bank, uh, that went back to you know I think the late seventeen hundreds uh, in in Hamburg, which was the free state of Hamburg. So it was like you know it was a place where Jews were able to uh, have a bit more freedom. And the the bank was called MM Warburg. It's it was steadily successful. Remarkably, it exists today. And you know Schiff had actually gotten after the dissolution of Bud Schiff and Company. Uh, Moritz Warburg, the patriarch of of the family, offers him a job, um, and he very briefly moved there to take it um, and then had to go back home to Frankfurt when his father died. But later on, uh, his daughter and Moritz's son, Felix, Mm -hmm. uh, would marry, and that was sort of the beginning of uh, a family connection. Later on, Felix's brother, Paul, would would marry Teresa's sister through, it's a little bit complicated, but ends up becoming his brother-in-law. Um, <laughs> so it's just, it's, it's kind of a mess of all these family relationships.
0: Correct. So in the Goldman Sachs story you tell, you know, Sam Sachs uh, had his brother, Harry join him at Goldman Sachs. And it's kind of like the beginning of the Sachs family. Obviously if you're Henry Goldman, you're watching all these Sachs people show up and you're thinking like, what are we chopped liver? Explain how deep that grudge was.
1: I mean, that's another interesting story about how you know blood and money doesn't always doesn't always mix that well. Um, so Marcus Goldman ends up making Sam uh, Sachs a partner, who had married his daughter Louisa, a partner in the firm. And at the time, uh, Henry uh, had wanted nothing more to join his father in business, but this very much showed him. Uh, you know where he stood, I think Marcus did not feel that Henry was ready for ready to be a partner in the firm um, he had dropped Henry had dropped out of Harvard, and you know, I think he felt uh, had a bit of an inferiority complex when he eventually joins the firm of Goldman Sachs. Um, Sam has established himself, his brother Harry is part of the firm, and Sam then sort of Starts admitting his sons to the firm, to the point where the Saxes are very uh, much outnumbering the Goldman uh, faction, and I think Henry really resented that. Um, and I think he also resented the fact that by this time Sam Sachs was pretty wealthy. He had just sort of built a a major estate uh, in the Jersey Shore. They had bad blood for that reason and many others, uh, including the fact that they were really quite different people. And they seem to have, uh, you know, the opposite point of view on basically everything.
0: So Schiff's history with the Union Pacific blew my mind, you know, because obviously I know that I knew Gould's, you know, experience with the Union Pacific and, and a lot of the railroads from the past. But this is a part of the history that I'd never heard. So are you telling me one of the most valuable companies in America sold at an auction in Omaha, Nebraska with a single bidder?
1: That's what happened. Um, (laughs) It's funny because at at that time, the railroads were going through these boom and bust cycles. Even the the, um, government subsidized uh, Union Pacific, Northern Pacific, Southern Pacific, they were going through these boom and bust cycles. Um, And, you know, there were railroads that would go through multiple periods of bankruptcy and at the time Schiff had entered the picture, there had been yet another financial panic. Mm-hmm. That this one had sent a number of railroads into receivership. Um, so there was there were great opportunities to be found uh, in the railroads for people who could raise enough capital to uh, to obtain these railroads. Um, in the case of the Union Pacific, it was complicated because of the government funding. That had been used to subsidize this road uh, basically uh, during the Civil War when Lincoln was trying to knit together Repu- the republic through transcontinental railroad lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, uh, he ends up being approached by uh, a representative of the Goulds who uh, – Jay Gould had been uh, running the line before his death um, and his family were still major investors um, and asked to – consider reorganizing the railroad um, and at that time he thought JP Morgan was was the one that was heading that up and JP Morgan had been involved and but this was sort of an example of the courtesy that that the deference that Schiff would have shown Morgan at that time um, that he went to go see Morgan and, and ask him before he 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 entered this uh, business um, and Morgan basically said, you know I've washed my hands of this this is too. Politically intractable It's all yours if you want it um, And over the next you know, Couple years Schiff ends up creating the conditions Where it could be sold at auction um, And then He and uh, Edward Harriman um, <clears throat> Who sort of enter, Enters the picture uh, Serendipitously I suppose um, End up Rebuilding the Union Pacific Which at that point had been sort of dismembered of a lot of its most important um, lines at that point.
0: Yeah, cause then in, in later at following that, you did it, you kind of talk about the Burlington saga. I grew up in Seattle, which is very near Burlington, Washington, obviously the namesake of the railroad itself. But the whole idea was, you know, how do I get, you know, goods or really, you know, I'll call it natural resources in most cases out of the Pacific Northwest, out into the rest of America via the, either the Northern Pacific or what we now know also as the Great Northern was the other railroad line there. And to your point, I mean, those games were all won and lost nowhere near the railroads. They were all won and lost in New York via these banks and, and you know, I'll call it industrialists.
1: Oh, you know, absolutely. And it, it, what's interesting is that at this point, you know, the railroad lines, 180,000 miles of track of, of what was basically 200 or 220,000 miles of track, were controlled by pretty much six factions. Um, so things are consolidating very rapidly. And where there had been these monopolistic communities of interest in the past, it becomes very hard to maintain order when each of these groups is gobbling up more and more real estate and and coming into conflict with one another
0: so let's go back to the Pujo committee real quick because we talked about this earlier but I just gotta I just got to get this number out because obviously you know Sherman as a, a political person also you know this is really what his career ended up becoming about but so and I'm gonna I'm gonna pull these numbers from your book the vast combinations of the power is so great that the banking organizations that we're talking about had 746 combined directorships in 134 corporations that collectively had resources or capitalization of more than 25 billion. I think Sherman called it concentrated power in vast combinations. Isn't this exactly what he was referring to when he called it this?
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because the Sherman Antitrust Act does not end up being used for, you know, very frequently for a decade and it's never wielded against a, uh, a a corporate combination but the test case for this ends up being a company called Northern Securities mm-hmm. um, which JP Morgan Schiff um, Edward Harriman and JJ Hill ended up forming it was it was a massive holding company um, that included you know the Northern Pacific the Great Northern um, and also controlled the Burlington. Um, and it ended up giving both the Union Pacific uh, and and their investors a seat at the table there too. So this was sort of like a community of interest on a on a vast new scale. And Roosevelt ends up using the Northern Sec- Northern Securities as a test case uh, for his for the, his trust busting crusade that follows. Um, and the Puho Committee. Probe what they called the money trust probe because uh, members of Congress believed that the most pernicious monopoly of all was a, was uh, bankers that hold held control over money and credit. Um, you know the 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 breakup of Northern Securities ends up uh, sort of indirectly leading to this major investigation into the control of money and credit in this country, and. What ends up coming out of this is if there wasn't you know, uh, a money trust in a literal sense, um, it was absolutely clear that firms such as JP Morgan, um, Loeb and a very small group of investment banks held a, uh, a great amount of control over not just railroads, but utilities, um, uh, trust companies, insurers, uh, a huge amount of businesses. And I think – I did the math recently, and I think they sort of controlled – you know, probably 13% of the nation's wealth at that point, including land.
0: Wow, that's crazy. So Paul Warburg, I kind of touched on this earlier with some of the fixing of the capital system for the government post the Civil War, but Paul Warburg walks right into that kind of foreshadowing of building the monetary system that we see today. And I, I love how you tell it through, you know, he's walking to work with Jacob Schiff and Jacob's like, hey... I like your ideas. <laughs> so so I just say that because like here again, here's Jacob being pretty pragmatic where he's like, yeah, I'm a bank. You know, I'm pretty good at banking, obviously. But he's like, I can see framework that's missing because we don't want to have panics all the time. And so can you, can you kind of tell the story a little bit behind where Paul got those ideas and then, you know, how pivotal he was with um, Rhode Island Senator um, Nelson Aldrich as well? So
1: when... Paul uh, Warburg ends up coming over to the United States, um, and he enters the partnership of Kuhn Loeb. He had been a partner in MM Warburg, um, and he actually would remain one. That was the the deal uh, for for him coming to the United States. He had married um, Nina Nina Loeb, and mm. he comes out of the German banking tradition. There's this; they have a central bank. Um, the system is just much more advanced. Uh, and then he comes to the United States and. There's no central bank. The currency is inelastic, means meaning it does not contract or expand based on demand. Um, and you have these conditions where any small shock uh, can really send the economy into a tailspin. Um, so I think from the outset, he is saying he's saying to himself, like, this is I mean, this is a crazy way to operate Um and you know he comes to the United States. He can't really, you know, he's learning English. He feels uh, a little bit self-conscious, um, so he sort of, sort of keeps his ideas uh, about banking to himself for a while. Um, and eventually, through these daily walks that he takes with Schiff, um, you know, starts sort of uh, elaborating on this. And I think, you know, Schiff at the time, you know, it's like, well, you know, Schiff is comes out of the German banking tradition as well. Um, and he said, well, you know, this is these are, these are great ideas, but you might want to keep them to yourself because I don't think it's going to go over well, uh, in the United States at this time. Um, but he ends up, uh, he ends up slowly sort of like articulating this and eventually writes, uh, a very big New York Times piece, uh, basically detailing his ideas about modern banking. Um, and Eventually, he becomes involved with this effort to overhaul the banking system that uh, Senator Nelson Aldrich, which was, who was a very powerful uh, lawmaker at that time, ends up uh, playing a vital role in. So, you know, when the Federal Reserve, as we know it, was sort of sketched out at a private club uh, in Jekyll Island with a handful of bankers and uh, Nelson Aldrich uh, Paul Warbrick was actually there. Um, and he would play a really vital role in refining the concept of the Federal Reserve um, and then would go on to serve as one of the first members of the board.
0: And I think a really nice asterisk on that was the idea of regionalism. Like I always wondered myself, why in the heck is there a Federal Reserve bank in Richmond, Virginia? I mean, is Richmond, Virginia that important in the modern economy? And the answer was, well, it actually, we wanted people to understand that it wasn't a federal system solely, that it was made up of regional components. That way they felt they had a a role and a voice, which I thought was a really interesting way of thinking about the Federal Reserve.
1: It's interesting because it kind of comes back to this idea of the money trust too. There was so much suspicion about... Bankers, um, and part of the reason for the for the decentralized central bank, with the what what um, Woodrow Wilson would call the capstone, which is the Federal Reserve Board mm. in Washington, was in order to sell this to uh, I- in order to sell this to sort of populists who did not want the Eastern bankers to be able or the money trust as they call them to control the Federal Reserve.
0: So then Paul goes on after being that brilliant. Obviously, that ends up getting passed. He becomes good friends over time with Carter Glass, which you know of the Glass-Steagall fame. Carter, you know, did a really good job of kind of teaching Paul about DC, and and there was a lot of kind of mentoring that I think Carter actually did that I picked up through your book. He goes on to then interact with Keynes post World War One as they get together in in Amsterdam and crack up ideas, drink drinks together, and go out and kind of try to proselytize people on the idea that reparations are going to cause a lot of future danger, which they prophesied World War II, in effect.
1: I mean, World War I was just tragic on many levels for the Warburg family, for uh, German Jews in America, for for Germans, uh, you know, uh, and many, like, people around the, you know, obviously throughout Europe um, as well, but it was just, it it had just been such... uh, a reckoning. You know, they were they were unable to communicate with their family in in Germany for, you know, uh, a couple of years, um, and Paul, uh, his brother Max, ends up representing the German government um, at the Paris Peace Conference, mm-hmm. um, and you know, uh, uh, the demand for rep- reparations went far beyond what even the Germany Germans thought was within the realm of possibility. Sure. Um, and it just ends up being so um, much more than they can withstand. Um, so, yeah, as you mentioned, after the after and, and Keynes was negotiating on behalf. He was a representative of the British Treasury um, and ends up actually quitting the role because he believed that uh, he could just see the disaster on the horizon. Um, and just thought this the demands that were being placed on Germany at that time were just unreasonable. Um, so as, you know, Germany starts to, conditions in Germany uh, deteriorate, um, Warburg, Keynes, and uh, some others meet in Amsterdam uh, where they begin sort of like talking about some ideas about how, you know, uh, Warburg was very big on this concept that in order to, Stop this spillover effect that was going to affect all of Europe, um, and potentially cause uh, you know nationalistic uh, uprisings. Um, they needed to heal Germany, um, and they could only do so by you know reducing the amount that was being. But by, by he wanted to ra- basically wipe out the the war debts, um, and of course the United States, uh, which. During the during World War one had really ascended to superpower status um, did not want to do this because they held a lot of uh, they, they, they were owed a lot a of, lot of money um, from the Allies so
0: well and while this was going on abroad obviously you know there, there's this kind of personal anguish that you just touched on a second ago going you know for Jewish people in the United States um, you gave the example of Henry Goldman obviously was, not well-liked by some of his family and colleagues because of his very like strong German feelings. And then even Schiff commented on it. I think it was with, he was in front of a Jewish communal workers group and he had a kind of a famous line, I thought from your book, that I didn't know if you, you had offhand to comment on and what his response he got back from the, the, the workers group.
1: Well, it was, it was interesting because um, German Jews had, had existed very harmonious harmoniously in the United States. And Schiff often used to talk about the Trinity uh, of his background Mm -hmm. as both a German, a Jew and as an American. Um, and he made this comment at one point. Um, and you know, the, the other piece of this is that this is at the time when Zion, the Zionist movement is really whipping up, uh, in New York, but he makes this comment and, and a Zionist activist, uh, Stands up and say, you know, well, you say you divide yourself three ways. Uh, is it horizontal or vertically? And if, <laughs> if horizontally, which piece do the Jews get? Um, and it's a it's a funny quote, but was it, it was, it was it was it was prophetic because in the World War One period, Schiff would be you know, virtually drawn and quartered because he was he felt a kinship to the country of his birth, Germany. Um, and initially supported uh, the German side in the war. Um, but it became these, these pieces of his identity um, came into conflict. Now, while Schiff really uh, becomes disillusioned by Germany eventually, um, Henry Goldman was staunchly pro German. Um, and this became controversial within, within his firm because the Saxes were pro ally um and this was often what would happen it sort of you know uh people that who had immigrated from the old country um typically still had some allegiances and but the newer generation uh who were born in the United States is, did not the United States did not in henry's case he was born in the United States but they used to go back to germany every year um and he was just very very pro german um and increasingly increasingly this became problematic especially with one of their business connections in the UK. Um, and uh, eventually eventually he leaves the firm in a very dramatic fashion during during World War I. And you know th- that was the end of a uh, Goldman working at Goldman
0: Sachs. So also to fight back on the conspiracy theories, um, you pointed out just a second ago that Jacob Schiff was not a Zionist and he did not agree with the Zionists like Louis Brandeis who obviously was on the court for example, was a, a massive Zionist that you pointed out in your book. And obviously this is going to come to the point of the Balfour Declaration. And I did not know that my birthday, <laughs> December 11th, is actually the anniversary of the British showing up at the Jaffa Gate in Jerusalem and entering the city, which is really interesting. I thought, wow, I am I feel that there's something more important about that. But I I mean, just think of how important that discussion is where here's this Jewish business person who has a lot of control over you know, what happens, what, what decisions are made based on his, his I'll call it his financial power and his, and his cultural sway. And yet at the same time, he was really an anti-Zionist where he did not consider that to be the end goal for the Jewish people. And I mean, I just think right now, Daniel, while we sit in the middle of, you know, what is a war on Jerusalem, those questions are still being asked right now among Jewish people.
1: It's very interesting that you mention that because I, I sort of just wrote a piece that's based on this—about the long history uh, uh, of the debate over Zionism within the Jewish community, which mm-hmm. dates back to the inception of Zionism. And the, basically, um, to, Zionism was uh, in part a reaction to rising anti-Semitism in Europe um, and also this flood of inf- immigration from the Russian Empire— um, uh, Schiff and his fellow philanthropic stewards end up making it possible for millions of Jews to immigrate to the United States, um, and they very much saw America as their promised land. They thought that Zionism, uh, which started as kind of a wild-eyed uh, movement, um, they thought it was it was risky because it could uh, it both inflame anti- uh, anti-Semitism. And it would validate this long-standing um, trope that Jews were were loyal only to themselves and would not, mm. could never be true or trustworthy to citizens. another country. Yeah, and that's why he thought this. That, that's why he uh, opposed Zionism. Uh, gradually, he started to warm to the movement to some degree, um, and this was based on the fact that during. World War One. You know, the bulk of the Jewish population lived within the conflict zone. Um, there was eventually a backlash to mass immigration in the United States, and uh, there were constantly laws being floated to restrict immigration. So I think you know Schiff could see the writing on the wall there. Um, but you know, Schiff ends up saying, you know, like, well, I could support a um, a religious uh, and cultural homeland in Palestine, but he never was able to get on board with the idea of um, of a Jewish state. Um, and I think, obviously, he dies in 1920 well ahead of uh, the events that would pave the way for Israel uh, to become a nation. Um, but I think this the, the debate is quite interesting, and there's really always been a debate within Judaism about... Um, about Israel and Zionism and a Jewish state.
0: When I think the other thing you pointed out, like I did not know that part of the agreement with the Nazis was that if Jewish people wanted to get their money out, they effectively the Nazis would collect a fee if they went to Israel, right? There was like, they were like money changing in a way where they could do it profitably if they ended up in Israel, which was just the strangest incentive structure I've ever seen. The, the other thing you, you said when you touched on America was really kind of like the dream of the Zionists. Well, if someone says to me, what do I find, like just as, as a non-Jew looking at Israel, what do I find so peculiar about Israel? It's the most entrepreneurial place plausibly in the world outside of America.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of, uh, I mean, you know, the whole history of Israel and, and like the kibbutzes and um, settlers sort of making nothing from, uh, making something from little, Um, that's sort of ingrained in that, in that history. And it's sort of, I mean, you know, it, it gets back to the same, I think, entrepreneurial spark that, uh, that you saw with, with Schiff and some of his contemporaries as well, um, who were also, uh, fleeing something.
0: Yeah. So Dan, there's a lot we didn't go into, and I'm even looking here at my notes, I mean, like just the Warburgs and where they got to intern, I was like, oh my gosh, I would have died to be a Warburg just so we're on the same page. You know, we didn't talk about Ernest Castle and his relationship with King Edward VII. You know, we didn't talk about things like the vast philanthropy. We didn't go into all that, which is just incredible for Jacob Schiff's life. Some of the inequities that came, there was even some, you know, problems that just came in the family, whether it would be personal problems or health problems, the Kuhn Loeb's relationship with Japan, Henry Ford's anti Semitism, I mean, and on and on and on. So I kind of want to throw it out to you is like, what's, what is there one last thing that didn't, we didn't touch that you do think needs to be mentioned, highlighted for your story?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we, I mean, we talked a lot about the financial component and, um, You know, while Schiff is not well known today, um, and J.P. Morgan's often seen as the pivotal figure in American financial history, Mm -hmm. you know, I would actually argue that Schiff's legacy is more consequential because his legacy went far beyond finance. Sure. Um, He was, as I mentioned, he and a small group made it possible if you If you come from a a Jewish family with a Russian or Eastern European background, as I do, your American story would not have been possible without Schiff. Sure. Um, he made it possible for millions of Jews to come to the United States. But it wasn't just uh, that he was politically connected and he was helping to pave the way on the political front. They also built a huge network of philanthropic organization that was dedicated to taking care of the immediate needs of the immigrants. So, you know, uh, English lessons, hospitals, those sorts of things, but also anticipated what it would take for them to thrive and quickly assimilate to American culture. And so, I mean, that part of his legacy and the the legacy of, you know, the tycoons I call the Money Kings— is just you know, once you know where to look, you start to see it all around you in present day life, whether it's the Federal Reserve Bank, whether it's the company Goldman Sachs, whether it's it's all of these iconic Western Union Westinghouse, these types of companies that were capitalized by these firms, or whether it's these philanthropic organizations, including the Henry Street Settlement or the American Jewish Committee or the Joint Distribution Committee that exist today. It's, you know, there it's remarkable how the degree to which we are living in this world that they helped to build.
0: I love it. I totally love it. This has been just so much fun for me, Daniel. So I really appreciate you. Thank you again for joining me. To our listeners, I see this book, as I said earlier, as a story of legacy building and Multiple steps in the right direction over decades in these people's lives, in these people's families, through pragmatism and opportunity, and ultimately trumping the idea that we should want to foreknow the future. They didn't, and yet they created a massive legacy, like like Daniel just mentioned. If you enjoyed this podcast, go to Apple, Spotify, YouTube wherever you listen to a book with legs. Give us a review, tell others about the books and great authors like Daniel Schulman that we have the opportunity to understand and study the world through. For our tribe, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at com. That's podcast at You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at smeedcap. Thank you for joining us for a book with legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening to A Book with Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.